All right, so um, yeah, we've been talking about, in the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the future, our future uh, as individuals, what, what does God have to say about the future? So we're going to continue that conversation today, and um, I mean, one of the things that we often think about when it comes to the future is just this idea of the plans that we have. So we're going to talk about that today, the plans that we have, the plans that we make, um, the plans that God has for us. But I thought before we jump into that, uh, I would do a little bit of a, of a poll here with the room. So I'm going to ask for 100% participation, hands up, proud of whatever category you fall into, okay? First service, they knocked it out of the park. I'm interested to see the difference between the 9 and the 10, 30 people if it, if it plays out differently. But I want to know how much of a planner are you? So we're, there's going to be five different statements I make going from least to greatest, and whenever you think this one describes you, just go ahead, just raise your hand, let the world know, all right? So here we go, number one, um, I don't know what I'm doing 10 minutes from now, anybody? Okay, all right, wow, 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 okay, <laughs> I kind of thought that'd be more the case with this service, just saying, just, I'm just kidding, all right, number two, okay, I have a plan for this week, I think, a little, little less, okay, all right. Just kind of, we'll go middle of the road, middle of the road. You know, I do think about my future somewhat often, okay? All right, now we're, we're tipping the scales to the other side. How about, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what I want my future to look like. Okay, and now the extreme other end of the, the scale I have every detail planned out. Like, I've got a five-year plan. I've got a 10-year plan. I have steps to get to that plan, and I can show you the PowerPoint after church if you want. Anybody? All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we all, we, we fall into different levels of that, right? You know, some, some of us are just naturally wired to plan. Others aren't. Regardless of how much planning you do, we all have plans, as in, I have a, an idea uh, for the future. I have a plan for the future. I may not have any clue how to get there or what the steps are going to look like, but I have a general idea of what I want it to look like. That's just, that's just almost baked into us as humans to, to look ahead and say, I think I know what the, I want the future to look like. But here's, here's what, what we all experience is the plans change. Uh, the, 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 the unexpected happens, um, that things don't go according to plan. In fact, more often than not, it seems like things don't go according to plan. And when that happens, that throws us for a loop when life doesn't look the way we expected it to or our plans aren't quite working out the way we thought they should. And then we come into a space like this, right? Come, we come to church, and uh, if you're like a person of faith, um, I'm assuming that either you're here, so you're, you're like, yes, I am a Christian, or I'm at least curious, I want to know more about God. And so we have to, to grapple with this idea that then what does God have to say about our plans? Because sometimes we have plans and life happens and life changes our plans. And then sometimes God's like, hey, I've actually got different plans for you. Uh, and what do we do then? What, what happens when our plans get interrupted? I want to talk about that uh, over the course of the next few minutes together. We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture One's going to be in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew. The other will be in uh, Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms uh, in the Old Testament, Psalm 40. Uh, we're going to start with Matthew, so Matthew 16. If you've got a Bible, you can head there. I'm going to have these verses up on the screen behind me as well. Matthew is one of the, the four accounts of the life of Jesus. We call them uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four different perspectives on uh, things surrounding the life of Jesus, his teaching, his ministry, his death and resurrection. Matthew is written by Matthew. Go figure. Uh, he also goes by Levi. 
He was one of Jesus' first disciples, first followers. In fact, Matthew was a tax collector, which meant everybody hated him, um, except for Jesus. Jesus is like, Matthew, I don't hate you. Come follow me. Come be part of my, my crew. And Matthew has his world and life completely changed, and he writes an account of the things that happened in Jesus' life. And so that's where we're going to go first. And Matthew records for us an interaction, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, but then it really hones in on Jesus and one particular disciple. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, is where we're going to pick things up. Matthew writes, And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Uh, Son of Man is just one of the titles for Jesus, and it's the one that he most often used for himself. There are several titles that Jesus has, several things that he fulfilled that those titles pointed to um, that that get kind of predicted and uh, and loaded into the biblical author's framework throughout the Old Testament. And they begin to, the New Testament authors pick up on this, but the the title that Jesus uses most often is Son of Man. Um, That originates in Daniel chapter 7, this vision that Daniel has uh, of the throne room of God. We kind of looked at one of those throne room scenes last week if you were here, and Uh, Daniel sees one like a son of man, which literally just means a human one, up in the throne room of God, seated seated next to God in power, and God says, all authority and power and dominion has been given to him. And so Jesus is like, I'm that guy, okay? I am that, the Daniel 7 son of man. And so essentially, all he's asking here is using the title son of man, but who do people say that I am? You know, what's the word on the street about me? Lots of people are talking about Jesus. He's causing quite a stir in the communities that he visits, teaching, healing, um, ruffling the feathers of the religious leaders and authorities. Who do people say that I am? So the disciples reply, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been killed, and they're like, I don't know, John the Baptist back from the dead, maybe. Um, Others say Elijah. Elijah is this really important Old Testament prophet. So like, okay, you're you're like kind of a reincarnation, another coming of uh, the prophet Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, so any of the kind of Old Testament prophets. There's basically this thinking that people recognize you're from God, you're a prophet of some sort, but they're kind of iffy on the details still. And I would imagine Jesus is like, okay, sounds good. That's not really the the question he's wanting to answer. I think this is just the lead in. Who do people say that I am? Here's what he's really going to get at. Then he, he asks the more direct question. Okay, but you, who do you say that I am? It's one thing to ask kind of the crowds and the general public, who do you say Jesus is? But now he looks at his disciples, the the, the guys that were with him for for three years, that walked with him and saw him teach and saw him heal people and interact with people, and and that they have all this up-close and personal relationship with Jesus. He says, now you've kind of seen behind the scenes, so who do you say that I am? Now this is is really in the point of the message, but I, I just, I can't... I can't look at that verse and not just mention this. This is like the most important question a person can answer, is the question of who do you say that Jesus is? And I think it's interesting that he asks his disciples that, because I think the same is true for us today. If you ask the, the kind of world around us, who do you say that Jesus is? But then if you, you zoom in on the church, those of us that are followers of Jesus say, wait, who do you say he is? And is that answer different? Because it, it probably should be. <laughs> who do you say that he is? I love this question. Um, we don't maybe think about this in our day-to-day lives, but everybody is answering or has to answer that question on some level or another. The, the, the Jesus question, it is the most important question that has permeated history. Uh, our world, our day-to-day existence has been shaped by this Jesus of Nazareth. 
what, what we call Western civilization and the values and the things that we hold are a direct, uh, they flow directly out of the teaching, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus that the church has carried on for 2,000 years. Even our calendars um, are dated, like when do we start, you know, dating what was now called the, the common era or used to be known as AD. Well, it's marked around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and so whether we know we're answering this or not, it's like Jesus impacts our life. Who do you say that he is? And so he asked his disciples this. Got to answer this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Peter kind of gives a two-part answer. First thing he says about Jesus is you're the Messiah. Uh, this, the disciples are Jewish, so they, they grew up and, and knew what we would call the Old Testament was just their scriptures. And throughout the Old Testament, this picture comes together. It kind of crystallizes as you go along through the story of Israel of one who would come who was this promised uh, representative deliverer of God's people. One who would be a king and a ruler in the line of David who would reign forever, God's final ruling king. And Peter's like, we think you're that guy, the one that was promised, who will deliver us and who will sit on the throne and fulfill all of these things and also the son of the living God. There's also a recognition that you're more than just human. You're not just some guy who's fulfilling this. You're God in the flesh. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Which is the answer that, that you would want Jesus' disciples to give. You know, for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus today, we may word it differently, but that should be our answer. When he asks us, who do you say that, that I am? It's like, okay, you are the king, you are God in the flesh, you died for sins, you rose from the dead. And so Peter is giving his version of that answer of who Jesus is. And Jesus tells Peter, bingo. Perfect. That's exactly who I am. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, Peter, same guy, different name. Um, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And so it's like, you got the answer right, but don't think too highly of yourself because you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. Peter, it's not just because you're super smart. God has also been doing something in you to reveal this to you. That's just an important thing for us to recognize as followers of Jesus as well, that there's more to knowing Jesus than just intellectual assent. That's really important. But there's also something that happens spiritually in the spirit of God working in us to reveal to us who Jesus is. So Jesus tells Peter, you've got this. And then he says something, verse 18, that is one of my favorite passages. And I know you're like, Phil, you say that every week about something that we're reading. I'm like, but I have lots of favorite passages, okay? Matthew 16, 18. I love this because of the implications that it has for us today. Jesus tells Peter, you're right. I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter, that's, you're, you're exactly right. That is who I am. And on this rock, the rock being the statement that Peter had made, the identity of Jesus. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And as Messiah, as the king, what does it look like for Jesus to be king? It looks like him crucified on a Roman cross, rising from the dead. That's what it looks like when Jesus is king. And he says, on that rock, on my life, death, resurrection, my identity as the Messiah, the son of God, I am going to build my church. I will build my church. He's talking about a, a future something a future plan. I will build my church. It hasn't happened yet at this moment in time. The church doesn't exist yet. It's just Jesus and his group of disciples and some, some kind of ragtag people on the fringes of his movement. But he's like, I'm going to build something. Something is coming in the future and it is going to be what we now call the church. 
Now, we, we think buildings and institutions, uh, but that is not what is being translated here. The Greek word is the word ekklesia, and it simply means a gathering or a, a movement, you could translate it, or a, a group of people. The idea is it's not particularly a religious word. It was used in other contexts. Anytime there is a group of people gathered together for a purpose, for a common vision, mission, we are together, we are unified around this thing, it's an ecclesia. And so Jesus is telling them, I am going to build a gathering of people, a group of people unified around one thing and built on one thing, and that is, Peter, what you just said, that I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God, my life, death, and resurrection. I will do that. One of the reasons why I love this passage so much is this is, this is what we would call prophecy. This is something about the future that hadn't happened yet. Jesus is saying something is going to happen, and this is like a prophecy that all of us get to participate in. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is predicting us that we are part of that movement, that gathering, that ecclesia. He says, I will do this. And then he says that nothing is going to be able to stand against it. And for 2,000 years, nothing has stopped the Jesus movement from going forward, from changing lives. Billions of people throughout history and around the world have been a part of this thing called the church. I'm going to do that, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Some translations, especially older ones, may say the gates of hell. We think hell, and we have very uh, specific pictures about maybe like an eternal judgment and flames and little devils and pitchforks. That's not the word here. The word Hades is actually the literal translation because it, it, it means death, the, the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament, the, the idea or the word that was used was sheol, that when you died, what matter if you're righteous or evil, everyone went to Sheol. Everyone went to the grave, just down to the earth, the realm of the dead. That's where everybody goes when they die. So that's the idea. So when he says the gates of Hades are not going to overpower the church, this movement, he's saying not even death itself will be able to stop what I'm doing. Not even death itself can stop this thing. And there's also this cool thing going on in the background, which the disciples have been very aware of. There's this visual picture. The region that they're in, Caesarea Philippi, uh, had a very, very long pagan history. So you can go there today. Uh, if you want to see pictures of it or something, you, you can talk to Pastor Paul someday. He, he had a trip to, to Israel years ago now before we planted the church. And he got to go to Caesarea Philippi. And at this area, again, for generations was known for pagan worship. There is a cave there that to the local pagan peoples of Jesus' day and the generations before that was known as the gates to the underworld the gates to the realm of the dead. That's where they thought, that's where you entered into this realm of these other gods and these spiritual deities and these, the source of spiritual evil. And so I love this because we're all like, Jesus, soft and gentle, and he loves me. And that's true, and he does. But here you have Jesus banging on the outside of the gates of hell, this, this place of spiritual evil, like saying, bring it on, you can't stop me. I'm just like, I like that Jesus. He's like, yeah, come on, like nothing is going, sin and evil and death cannot stop what I am about to do. He's talking to Peter, right? Peter's got to be loving this. This sounds really good because you're like his guy. And of his 12 guys, you're like the guy, the guy. You're like, we're all following Jesus, but hey, I'm Peter, okay? All right? And so this sounds like a really good plan. In fact, it, it even gets better, right? He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And so he's, he's a little secretive about it. So there's a lot of like timing stuff that goes on with Jesus. This is one of the first moments with his disciples that he's very, very uh, open about his identity. 
where he actually confirms, yes, I am the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. But now that you know that, shh, don't tell anyone. Keep it on the down low, okay? And a lot of that just had to do with timing because he knows once, once word about that starts getting out that it's, it's going to accelerate. Hey, he's going to the cross. The religious leaders aren't going to like this. So he's like, it's not time yet for everyone to know this, all right? So keep it on the down low, but I am the Messiah. So what has Jesus just said? Or what has he just told Peter and his disciples? He says, I have a plan for the future. My plan is to build a movement, a gathering built on my identity and who I am and what I have done and my, my defeat of sin and death. Death will not prevail against it. And Peter, you're going to play a part of it. And Peter's got to be loving it. I love that plan. Don't you love it when you see like God's plan? You're like, that's great. This is, God, this is awesome. I love your plans that you have for me. But if we are watching the, 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 the movie right now, the soundtrack's about to change. And it's going to go from like triumphant to kind of ominous because the conversation shifts. Okay, here's the plan that I have. And oh, by the way, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples, here's a really important word, that it was necessary, not optional, not a nice add-on, but that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. From that moment on, as, as this realization when Jesus says, I'm, I, yes, here's the plan. The plan is that I am the Messiah and I'm doing something for the whole world and I want to start this movement and you get to be a part of it. But here's a necessary part of the plan. I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter doesn't seem to like that too much. You're already hearing the words if you're familiar with this account. As soon as it's like, as soon as Peter hears the suffering and dying part, he's gone from woo to uh uh. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. I don't want to be too harsh on Peter because we do the same thing. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But like, Two verses ago, was it? Peter was just like, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You are God in the flesh. You are going to rule forever. All authority, all power, all dominion is yours. How dare you, Jesus? It's like, what? Like, how do you, how do you say that to that guy? There is this disconnect between who Peter says Jesus is versus what his actions actually display. That whenever... Peter was thinking rationally, and it sounded good whenever the plan was what he was liking and how it was going to work out. But the minute that things begin to change and difficulty was predicted, all of a sudden, all that goes out the window. And it's just like the emotions flare up, rationality goes out the window. He doesn't even, it's like he doesn't even realize who he's talking to. He's <laughs> like, you, no, you can't do this. This won't happen. And again, like, I want to be hard on Peter, but then I think about moments in my life where it's, oh my gosh, it's exactly the same. When life is good, when things are going according to plan, I can be rational, when things are they're fine, and my relationship with God, we're good. Okay, God, I see right what you're doing. But when we go off script a little bit, it's like rationality goes out the window and the emotions kind of take over. I'm like, God, what are you doing? How could you? This isn't right. This is. It's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? What just happened? Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen. This can't be part of the plan. This, get, get out of here with all that suffering and dying stuff. I liked the plan a minute ago. You being the Messiah, love it. Okay, building a movement, you're starting a movement best, based on that, love it. 
Death can't stop it. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Amen, Jesus. Preach. I get to be a part of it. Woo. Suffering and dying. Uh-uh. That's not how it goes. God, that's, that can't be how God would work. That can't be how he would do things. There's no way that that's what God would use. There's no way that could possibly be a part of his plan. That obviously Jesus isn't how God would choose to work. Jesus now has some uh, strong words for, for Peter. They come off as harsh. But sometimes we need the harsh words to set us straight. And Jesus is not, he's going to rebuke Peter. He's going to re- rebuke him for rebuking him. But it's not because he's, you know, he hates Peter. He says, no, no, Peter, you, this, is, this is good for you. You need to see that this is good for you. And so he turns and tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but human concerns. Peter, if you want to oppose me suffering and dying, you are actually doing Satan's work. You, you are actually teaming up with the enemy and doing his work. You're not thinking about God's concerns or God's plans or what he thinks is best or what is needed or what is necessary. You're, you're thinking about human ones. Peter, you, you, you like the sound of what I said a, a minute ago, right? But it seems as though you only like the sound of it if we get to do it your way. You like the final result, but you don't like the path to get there, Peter. Peter, remember the whole death itself can't stop this thing? So why are you freaking out now that I said I have to suffer and die if death can't stop this thing? See, in Peter's mind, this, this plan, what sounded really good, it went off script and now it sounds awful. It can't possibly be this way. But here's the, the key piece is that, that Jesus knows something that Peter doesn't. That he sees the whole picture. That while his death would be painful and it would be frightening and it would be confusing and it would cost a lot, it would bring about, it would lead to resurrection and bring about the salvation of the world and the launch of the church, the very thing that Jesus said he was going to build. See, in in reality, Jesus' death was an essential part of the plan. And it was part of the plan and it was good. And not just for Peter and not just for the disciples, but for the entire world throughout generations. And as I was kind of preparing this, I'm like, that, that just seems to be the struggle that we so often live in as followers of Jesus. Because here's one of the things. We, we talk a lot about new life and new creation. We talk about resurrection life. Like, I want to live in resurrection life. I want that to just flow into everything about my life. I want my life to be defined by it, from my, my relationships to, to my work to the way I'm, you know, I'm a husband and a, and a father and, and the different things that I do and in my inner life and who I am. Like, I want to see resurrection life and resurrection power. And that, that, that promise the Apostle Paul makes, he, he writes that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now living within us. I'm like, I want that resurrection life. But so often we forget that resurrection only comes on the other side of death can't be resurrection if something doesn't die first. For resurrection life to be part of the plan means that death has to be a part of the plan too. And here's Jesus confronting Peter saying, Peter, my plan for you and my plan for the world is good, but do you trust me and do you trust the process of what I'm doing is actually better? And that is the place that we find ourselves when our plans change, maybe because of life or maybe because God has something different for us and we're kind of confronted with the same thing. His plans for us are good, but do we trust him? Do we trust the process? 
do we look and say, okay, because of what he has just said to Peter, that he is going to suffer and he is going to die for the sake of the world, can I look at that and say, even when my plans don't go how I think they should, when God has something different in mind, I can still trust him because of who he is and what he's done in the past, because he suffered and died, because he rose, because that's what was necessary and he wasn't going to hold back to do what was necessary. Do I trust that process? You see, this is, this is the, the part of the message where it's, it, it starts to hurt a little bit and where the rubber meets the road and sometimes we get our, our toes stepped on. Because if, if I'm speaking from personal experience, I would imagine I'm not the only one in the room who sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I actually think I trust my plan way more than God's. And I want to push against that in so many areas of life. And I think from everything, maybe it's, it's, it's a relational thing. I have an idea of what a relationship should be like or what it should look like. And so I had this plan of how life would go out, out and, you know, it's gonna, it was going to look this way, and it's not there yet. And, and sometimes if I'm not trusting God and his plan and his timing, I'm just going to try to force my own plan and work my own plan, and then I find myself in dead-end relationships and broken and hurt. But do we trust the plan even if God says it's not going to go the way you thought it would, but I have something better for you? Maybe it's not the relationship you hoped for, but it's a better relationship with me. When we think about something like physical healing that we pray for, my God, would you heal me? Would you heal that person that I love, that person that I, I care about? And that's my plan, and that's what I work. But, but can I trust that God's plan for me without healing, if his answer is no, is actually better for me than my plan with it? To think about career and finances and where I thought I would be, and I haven't climbed the ladder, and I haven't gotten that promotion, and, and, but, but, but can, I, can I trust that God's plan is better, that maybe I haven't got what I wanted and maybe things are tight, but I have a life now of contentment and simplicity and joy that I maybe wouldn't have had before. Across the board, we can go down from in every aspect of life, every area of life, and think there was my plan, and then there's God's plan, and sometimes those things are butting heads. In those moments, do I trust that his plan is better? Do I trust the words of Jesus when he talks about that narrow is the road that leads to life and few find it? which means that sometimes it's hard to be on that road and that road costs us and that road is uncomfortable. But it leads to life, that his plans for us are good. Do we trust him? Do we trust the process of what he's doing? Do we look back at what he said to Peter and go, okay, if that's who you are and that's what you've done, if you have suffered, if you have died, if you, if you have done that for me, why can't I trust you with all these other things in my life? And again, that's way easier said than done. Because if you're, you're anything like me and you're, you're, you're asking the question right now, hey, do I trust that his plans are good? If you're like me, that answer is sometimes. Sometimes I trust that his plans are good and other times not so much. Or sometimes I want to, I want to trust his plans are good, but I'm not there. And if we're being really honest, sometimes you're like, nah. <laughs> Because that, that plan sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. And sometimes we're in a place where we go, okay, that's how. I want to get to a point where I, I trust that he's good and his plans for me are good, even when things aren't going according to my plan. I want to look, uh, just wrap up our time together. I'm trying to apply this a little bit um, with a psalm. Pastor Paul read it, uh, a part of it earlier um, in between a couple of the songs. It's Psalm chapter 40. It's a psalm of King David. I love the Psalms uh, because of the, the different perspective they bring to our faith. Throughout the, the, throughout the scriptures, there's different kinds of literature. Some of it's very, very clear instruction, and there's letters, and there's kind of more historical stuff. But the Psalms come to us, and they're, they're poetry, they're music. 
they are, they are the crossroads of like human emotion, like going through the entire human experience where that intersects faith with God. And so you see the psalmist, sometimes they're happy and they're celebratory. I'm like, God, you're so awesome. You see them confused. You see them hurting. You see them in pain as they just go through this thing that we call life and they bring that before God. I think Psalm 40 can give us some direction of what does it look like and how do we trust God and trust the process and trust his plans for us. So here's what David says. Psalm 40, starting in verse 1. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Patiently is a, a good translation, but it doesn't quite capture the, the, uh, the longing or the, the angst. It's angsty David that's there, uh, where it, it's almost like it, we would say, I waited patient. I waited, I waited for the Lord. Okay, like this, I'm waiting. It's not just like, I'm so patient. Take your time, God. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being patient, I'm, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I waited for the Lord, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord, and he has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord, my God, you have done many things, your wondrous works and your plans for us. None can compare with you. If I were to report and to speak of them, they are more than could be told. And so here's David just saying, look at what God has done. He's been so awesome. He's been so incredible. He brought me out of a pit. He set me on a rock. He's delivered me over and over. He's got wonderful plans and wonderful works. He has been so, so good. That was David's past experience with God's faithfulness. It was not his present reality. It was not what he was experiencing in the moment that he wrote this. The second half of the psalm, the, the, the tone completely shifts. We get down to verse 12, and he says, For troubles without number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to rescue me. Hurry to help me, Lord. I am oppressed and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. David actually writes this psalm from a place of his current reality is a mess. Life is not going according to plan. He's got enemies around him. He's oppressed. He's needy. His iniquity is all around him. He's just, he's crying out. His current reality is a mess. But then in the midst of that, he still has this hope to a future of like, and yet, God, don't delay. I, I trust that you're going to come. I know that you're going to show up. Please deliver me. Please deliver me. He trusts in God's future and his plans for the future. Why? Because of where he started the psalm. Because of God's faithfulness in the past. He wasn't trusting in God based on just a feeling or a thought, but based on cold, hard God. You have done this for me before. You have been faithful in the past. So in spite of my present, I know that you'll be faithful in the future. That I can trust your plans for me. I can trust your plans that they are good. And so I, I want to encourage us, invite us into this space of where we just process life that way. When life doesn't go according to plan, or whenever maybe God himself says, I've actually got a different plan for you, that, that we could bring into balance what David is doing here, and just ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first question is simply this, what am I feeling about my future? 
As I'm going through whatever I'm going through in the present and I'm thinking about the future, maybe I'm scared, maybe I'm confused, maybe I'm worried, maybe, maybe I'm excited, maybe, maybe I'm just ticked. I mean, I'm ticked at God, so I'm like, I, you, I, it's not supposed to be like this, and I keep praying, and it's still like this. What are you honestly feeling about the future? You don't need to hold back. Again, if you read the Psalms, the psalmists don't hold back. All right, David, that we just read, he's not like, hey, God, so things are kind of hard right now, but it's good, it's good. If you get a second, could you come help me? But if not, I, I know that you're busy. No, he's like, God, get here right now. Life is awful. Where are you? And so what am I feeling about the future? I mean, it can be very, like, therapeutic to actually write that down and get that out and, like, keep a, a journal of prayer that says, God, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I'm going through, here's what I'm experiencing, where are you? And then the next thing to ask, okay, but how's God been good in the past? How's he been good in the past? How's he been good to me in the past? You personally, where's God showed up? This is why, I think one of the best things, one of the best habits you can develop is hard because some people are more naturally wired to do this and some aren't. I'm not wired to do this, so honestly, I don't really, and I should, is to write down and to keep track of all the ways where God has showed up for you. Keep a note in your phone, keep a notebook. You know what? Hey, last week, God answered that prayer. Last week, or last year, six months ago, someone had a conversation with me when I was just in a, when I was in a pit and I, I needed that person at that time and God provided them and they gave me the encouragement that I needed. I didn't know how ends were going to be, be met here and I didn't know what was going to happen and then something just showed up. Like just, just keep track of those times in your life. Like God showed up there and there and there and there because if we don't do that, we're quick to forget. So how has God been good in the past to me? But don't stop there because sometimes when it comes to our own lives, we have our blinders on. It's hard to see. But how has God been faithful in the past to people around me? I think we often miss out on that one. Because again, we don't see it in our own lives. And I know just looking around this room and looking at faces here this morning that we could go around the room if we had time and hear story after story after story of how God has showed up for people. Of how in the past month, six months, year, five years of what God has done and how he has provided and how he has been faithful. And when we hear how God has been faithful in other people's lives, that lifts our spirits. And we think, you know, he'll be faithful in mine as well. And then finally, how has God been faithful just to the world? How's he been faithful in my life in the past? How's he been good in the past to, to me, to others around me, just to the world? Where I look back on that foundational truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That foundational core thing. If he has done that, I can trust him. So what am I feeling about my future? How has been, God been good in the past? And then quite simply, just connect the two. Just connect the two. God, because you have been faithful in this, 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 and this, because you've been good in this, this, and this, and I've seen it, and I've experienced it, and other people have seen it, I know it says it in, in your word, because you've been faithful and you've been good in the past, I know I can trust you with this that I'm going through right now, or this in my future. What am I feeling about the future? How has God been good in the past? Connect those two things together. Plans are always going to change. That's the nature of, of the world that we live in. Sometimes life's going to throw us a curveball and we're going to have to adjust on the fly or we're going to be completely knocked off our feet. Sometimes God's going to say, hey, I've got a different plan for you. Plans are going to change, but no matter what the future holds, no matter what uh, the plans may be, to come to a place where it says, okay, God, I trust you and I trust the plans that you have for me. And I know that if my trust is in you, then everything's going to be all right. It may not, it may not look like I thought it was going to look like but it's going to be okay. I'll pray for you. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you, that we can trust the plans that you have for us, and that our trust in you and our faith in you, it is, it is not simply built on 
a feeling. It is not built on something that, that we just read about or something that someone tells us about, but our, our trust in you is based on who you are and what you have already done, that you have been faithful and you have been good to us personally, to the people around us, and most powerfully, Lord, to the entire world when you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins, raised from the dead. So God, may we, we just be reminded every day of those truths, of your goodness. God, may your goodness in the past inform everything about our present and our future, that we may trust that you are good and your plans for us are good. God, I pray especially for those right now who are having a hard time believing that, that are in a season and a moment where nothing's going according to plan and they're wondering if it ever will again. God, may you strengthen them through your spirit. May you reveal to them who you are. Give them the strength to know that as long as you are with them, they're gonna be okay. And so, Lord, I pray this all in Jesus' name.